This is Business Breakdowns. Business Breakdowns is a series of conversations with investors and operators diving deep into a single business. For each business, we explore its history, its business model, its competitive advantages, and what makes it tick. We believe every business has lessons and secrets that investors and operators can learn from, and we are here to bring them to you. To find more episodes of Breakdowns, check out joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. Today, we will be diving into Moderna. Founded in 2010, Moderna and its innovative RNA platform made headlines after developing one of the first COVID vaccines. We treated this breakdown slightly different than our other episodes. I'm joined today by two guests. First, I am joined by Jason Kelly, CEO of Ginkgo Bioworks. He gives us a primer on the biotech industry, genetic modification, and how Moderna's platform represents a new breakthrough in the industry. Then, I talk with Matthew Harrison, biotech analyst at Morgan Stanley. We will cover what differentiates Moderna's business model, how Moderna science could lead to faster and higher efficacy drug development, and key takeaways for investors and operators. I hope you enjoy this business breakdown of Moderna. All right. Welcome, Jason Kelly, the CEO and founder of Ginkgo Bioworks. Thanks for coming on, Jason. Yeah, thanks for having me. So let's jump in with the first question. What is a biotech company? We hear that term thrown around. What does it mean when someone says, I'm a biotech company? Historically, it's basically meant you develop therapeutics. And there was like a long history of drugs made by Pfizer that came from chemicals. Basically, these were like chemical companies that then realized chemistry could be used to treat disease. In the late 80s, there was a new technology that allowed you to basically take a gene from one species and move it into another. This was when Genentech and Biogen, it was like the beginnings of what became the biotech industry. And the first products were really simple. Take the gene for human insulin, which diabetics can't make, like my dad's a diabetic, can't produce it. Take that gene, put it into a bacteria like an E. coli or something, grow it up in a big tank, and it makes human insulin. You put it in a syringe, shoot it in your arm or your leg, and you can treat diabetes. Helps lots of people and it's a big market and a big business. And that was the beginning of biotech. It was using genetic engineering as a tool to develop new therapeutics. And I think today that's starting to mean something new, but that's what it's long meant. Got it. And therapeutics here just means effectively medicine or... Yeah, drugs. Drugs. And so today, I guess in the newer definition, or if you were to put Moderna in a company, is it a biotech company or what type of company is it? Yeah. So Moderna, I see is really like a category leader in this new area, really using DNA as a drug or RNA as a drug. To explain this a little bit, there's this amazing feature of biology, which is that inside every cell is digital code in the form of DNA. So it's A, T, C's and G's, not zeros and ones like you have in a computer. But importantly, you can read this code. You might have heard of like the Human Genome Project and genomics and all that. That's just reading DNA. Put a cell into a machine and then on your computer comes ATC, GGGG, like whatever's inside it. It's wild. And then importantly, you can also write DNA. So you go on your computer, you type ATC, GGG, you hit print and out of a lab, you know, like the one you can see behind me, comes that piece of DNA. You actually get it. And so if you can read and write code and you have a machine to run the code, which is kind of how you can think of a cell, well, you can program it. And that to me is really what Moderna, they're the first therapeutics company that's coming right out and saying, what we're going to do is program your cells with DNA or RNA in their case, code to make them do something new. And in this case, most notably, to make a little piece of the COVID-19 virus so that your immune system gets set off and protects you from the disease. But really, ultimately, you could program those cells to do many things. Wow. Help us bridge the gap between the Genentech or the example you gave of the insulin. How did it go from that to then what sounds almost like software or computers, computer programming of the cells? The very beginnings was just chem- was chemistry and you were limited by what you could make with chemistry. The Genentechs of the world, I think of that like cut and paste. Okay. It was like, I'm going to find something out there. I'm going to cut it out and I'm going to put it in this other thing. It was happening with Moderna and really this whole category is known as synthetic biology, what this area is known as you're actually able to design that DNA however you want because you're using DNA printing to make it. 
And so you aren't any more limited by just what you can cut and paste like you were in the first generation of biotech. Ultimately, now we can write this stuff to be whatever we want. And importantly, it's gotten much, much cheaper and more high throughput to do it as well. And if you back up on the DNA, like this notion that it's four letters of code, can you walk us through the history of that? Like, how did that come to be? Who's the father or mother of that? Where did that come to be? And how did it evolve to today where it sounds like you're able to essentially program your own things in a lab and create them? The first thing to realize is this is just a miracle of biology that it works this way in the first place. You get back 4 billion years of evolution. Here's the magic. When we invented computers, we had to come up with a way to copy things. You want to send a file or make it. And we realized that instead of like a record player, which is an analog thing, little bumps on the record define the data, but those can kind of move around and change. If you really want to transfer information with high fidelity, make a CD, make it zeros and ones, digital, because every time you copy it perfectly. Biology figured out the exact same thing. When you have a kid, you want to transmit heritable information. You want your genes to move on to the kid. And the way that biology figured out how to pass information across generations, digital, ATCs and Gs. It just happens to do it, not with magnetic bits on a computer, but with actual chemicals. Through our cells. Yeah, ATC and G are actual chemicals. I mean, they're, they're actual chemicals in a long string, just like a piece of cassette tape back in the day, a long string of molecules. That's just how biology works. There was the discovery of DNA, you know, Rosalind Franklin and Crick and all those folks, Watson, figured out what it looks like, but they just were discovering it. They didn't invent it. It just was that way. And then we take advantage of it as cell programmers, as synthetic biologists. We take advantage of that fact that it's digital and read and write it to make it do new things across really tons of markets. But Moderna is really the leader. So when did they discover it? What took it from them discovering it to then maybe the Human Genome Project profiling to now the point? Like, What are the big milestones and timing between those two things? So one of the technologies that got invented in the late 70s was PCR. Okay, And I won't get into too much technical detail, but what PCR lets you do is basically pick a certain region of DNA and make a billion copies of it. And you're basically hijacking the fact that cells have ways to copy their DNA because every time you have a cell has a kid, it makes a whole copy of its genome. So there's really great little things called polymerases that read the DNA and pop off a copy. And so PCR, you just do that in the lab. You basically say, hey, this little region, make copy, 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 copy. And the advantage of that is you start to get tons of it. It's enough you can work with it in the lab. So that's one technology, PCR. So that's what they did with the insulin. They took a human cell. They found where the insulin gene was. They put these things called primers in, which are little markers on either side of the gene. And they use PCR to make billions of copies of it. Now, you got to get it into the bacteria to make that insulin drug that built Genentech, now a hundreds of billions of dollar company. What did they do to do that? A technology called restriction enzymes, which are basically scissors. It's like little molecular scissors that bacteria use to cut DNA up. Why do they do that? Oh, because they're afraid of viruses. So if a virus infects a bacteria the bacteria blows up. And so to defend itself, it has a technology that it invented through evolution, which is if I see some DNA that isn't mine, chop it into pieces. <laughs> and in fact, the more modern form of these restriction enzymes is what's called CRISPR. So you might've heard of CRISPR. Same shit. Basically a technology bacteria used to defend themselves from a virus inserting its code into the bacteria and the bacteria wants to cut that into pieces before it executes. It's wild. And so what Genentech did was it said, okay, I've got this scissor. I know it cuts in a certain place in the bacteria. I got this PCR to make copies of insulin. I'm going to use the scissor to cut the bacterial genome and the PCR product so that they match each other. And then I just paste them together. And that happened in the late 70s. 1978 was the very first. That was the beginning of humans directly influencing the evolution of biology, life on this planet. One quick sidebar just occurred to me. Can you get even closer? What's actually happening? Is the microscope doing these things? Like, what are the tools a human being is using to do these things? Is it like our biology class where we had a little dropper thing and we dropped from one petri dish to do it? Like, you're on the right track. Yeah. So I did a PhD at MIT in bioengineering. And this is basically five years of standing in front of a lab bench with a pipette, which is like a little straw, essentially sucking up one colorless liquid and squirting it into another colorless liquid and doing these elaborate little like little lab experiments, right? Horrible. It is a painful process. You can easily mess it up and you can't see what's going on because everything is microscopic. In modern labs, like at Moderna, if you visit them and, and here at, at Ginkgo Bioworks, it's mostly robotics and automation actually doing the work now. 
that has been part of the reason, so you asked earlier, what's different between 1978 and today? One of the other big, big innovations is dramatically more laboratory automation and dramatically more software and data analytics to parse the, a huge amount of data coming out of that automation. So the way we do lab work now, night and day from what it was in 1978. And so that means you can now, where they could do one gene, we can do 10 or 20,000. It's a really big change in capacity. Oh, wow. So in the late 70s, it was like to build this insulin example, a bunch of human beings kind of doing this boring exercise of guess and test effectively of PCR, I can copy this and I can splice it with the scissors, insert it and then test it. And I did that probably hundreds of times before it actually worked. Yes. And you didn't get many shots because it was so laborious. If you didn't get it to work in the first 10 or 50, you were never going to get it to work because you just couldn't try that many designs. And now like many parts of our lives, it's like software and hardware are somewhat automated to the point where this can happen at a scale. What you used to be able to do in a year is like a day. Yeah. So like to give you a sense of scale. All right. In grad school, I probably did uh, 50,000 letters of DNA that I said in five years at MIT. A big month at Ginkgo today would be like 50 million letters. So like we're doing in a month, many thousands of times the amount of designs I was able to try at five years. And that was back in grad school in like kind of the early 2000s. So basically from the late 70s, is it fair to say that computing power over time, basically the real delta in what's allowed it to become? Yeah, computing and laboratory robotics and then continued innovation in the tools of at the bench. What you're actually doing there, that has been improving as well. CRISPR is a better version, for example, of those restriction enzymes. Well, CRISPR was around, but no one had discovered it in the late 70s and understood how it worked. And now we do. And so that gives you a much better tool. When you say printing, you mean mixing together chemicals that replicate those letters. Is that the right way to think about it? So the historically, the way you made DNA was kind of like you're thinking, chemistry. So you had like a column, if you remember like a chemistry class, you'd see these like weird columns full of stuff. You just put the letters in, A, and then T, and then C, and they would get, and they'd stitch into a piece of DNA. And A, T, and C are just chemical. Adenine, thymine, cytosine, guanine. Yep. They're called nucleotides, a type of chemical. And they're a special chemical that snaps with each other so that they can make a string. And then there's the double helix. Remember, like A binds to T and C binds to G. That's a little trick so that you can split it apart and then make a copy of each side. And that's how DNA replicates. But the new way you make DNA actually came out of Hewlett Packard. So it's literally printing. The assay division of Hewlett Packard is a company called Agilent. And they took inkjet printing technology. And instead of ink in there, they put the ATCs and Gs and they spot it onto a little slide. And you get the little ATCs and Gs. You get them there about hundred plus letters long in little teeny bits. And then we do some fancy stuff in the lab to stitch those pieces into a thousand or 10,000 letters, which is what you need for a whole gene. But the actual beginnings, the DNA, when it's done, it's printed with something that looks like ink. So literally printing is the right word. I mean, it's the same thing. They're just taking the chemicals and putting them on a thing that, wow. Yep. yep. That's unbelievable. Can you just draw the analogies to tech is a very, everyone understands it. What's the parallels in our bodies or in this whole DNA world? Let's take Moderna's mRNA vaccine as an example to talk through this. What they want to have happen is they want cells in your body to express little pieces of the virus, okay? In other words, to produce small amounts of the virus so that your immune system will recognize it and fire up. That way, if the whole virus shows up later, the immune system takes it out. Okay, that, all right. So there's lots of ways you could do that. Historically, we actually just put pieces of the virus in, you could do dead virus and all kinds of stuff. All right. Moderna had a different idea, which is they wanted to say, well, we know the cell can read code and make things. And the way it does that is it has DNA, which is what the whole genome is made of. It's like the hard drive of the cell, kind of. And then that DNA, there's little things that come along called ribosomes. They read the DNA, okay? There's polymerases, they read the DNA, they make a piece of what's called messenger RNA, all right, which is like a temporary piece of code. And then a ribosome shows up, reads the messenger RNA and makes protein. So there's like DNA, which gets read to make a little temporary piece of code. Think of it like RAM in your computer, something temporary. And then along comes the ribosome and makes the protein. And that's like the RAM in your computer memory, like it runs at real time. Is that the way to think about it? It is a way for you to decide what parts of the genome you want to turn on at a given time. The simple way to think about it is in your cells, the same genome makes your eye cells as your nose. And it's just what genes are getting turned on allows you to run different programs from that same underlying genome that is you. 
what Moderna said is, okay, great. I'm going to come in at that level. I'm going to basically install some mRNA in your cell that is not in your DNA. It's going to be a little piece of the COVID-19 virus. And your cell is going to read that mRNA because that's what it does. The ribosomes are going to read it and they're going to make a little piece of the virus. And then your cell is going to essentially express that and show it to the immune system. That hack is how their vaccine works. And so if you look at what it is, it's basically just what's called a lipid nanoparticle. It's basically like a little fatty ball with that mRNA sitting inside of it. And when it gets to one of your cells, it's the mRNA squirts in is basically how it works. And so the computer analogy there would be, it's like, there's some program in my DNA, memory in my DNA, and this mRNA is essentially activating a software. It's like a temporary software patch that's going to create. What I would say is the mRNA is the software your cell is currently executing. That's a good way to think about it. There's a lot of different options in your genome of what code you want to run. And depending on what's going on with your cell at a given time, it turns on different parts of the DNA and converts them to RNA and then executes them. RNA is like the code you're actively executing. What Moderna does is they pop in and they say, here's some RNA, run it. And your cell dutifully runs it because that's what it does when it sees RNA. And so the idea behind Moderna is in this moment, you want to put in RNA for COVID, but tomorrow it could be RNA for a cancer treatment or heart disease or whatever. Your cells can do pretty powerful stuff. If you just gave them the right code, then you could deal with disease X, Y, or Z. That's the theory of Moderna. The COVID vaccine, the first version of this with human beings and curing something or whatever the word you'd use is protecting against a virus. It is the first ever RNA vaccine. This is the beginning of, you were just talking about cancer and all these other ailments. It's the first time this technology has ever been used really in human beings to solve a large spread disease effectively. Certainly for a vaccine. Yeah. There's been trials. There's an area called gene therapy where you're basically trying to deliver code for the treatment of disease. There are a few diseases where there are drugs like that. This is by far the biggest rollout of an RNA, any kind of nucleic acid, DNA, or RNA drug in history, and the first ever vaccine. It is a huge turning point. From my standpoint, it's basically like being in 1978 with insulin, is what both Moderna and BioNTech, which is the other company that the Pfizer one, those RNA vaccines being as successful as they were with 95% efficacy in the whole thing. To me, that is Genentech and insulin all over again, but for a whole new category of drugs. And everyone knows that this happened fast. A lot of people have read about that, but can you give some more perspective on if this world of mRNA and biotech generally didn't exist or didn't exist in this way that we've talked about so far, how long would this have taken or what would this have looked like in this world? Tell me if I'm wrong. It sounds like the virus came, someone went into a printer, almost literally printed out this mRNA thing. And that happened in a week, it sounds like, from the time that we knew there was this virus. And then within a week, then there's just a bunch of packaging and testing and again, within a year of this thing, it was able to be injected into a human being and it was working from what we can tell. What does that look like without any of this technology? Keep in mind, like the longest time period of this whole thing was running the clinical trial. So one of the hard things about developing drugs, and this is why I think it's actually worth keeping in mind that for like synthetic biology as a category, printing DNA and programming cells at ever bigger scale, there are tons of market. Yeah, like talk about it, like the Impossible Burger, for example, has a engineered protein in it. Yeah, let's go there for one second and come back. So as a consumer, if I'm a person, you mentioned the impossible, what are other ways this technology shows up in my life? So if you ever had the impossible burger, you bite into this thing. So it's a plant-based burger, right? It's a veggie burger. You bite into it and it bleeds. Oh, that's a bit weird. So where's the blood coming from? So what impossible did was they did that same like insulin trick. They found the gene for hemoglobin, what makes blood red, and they moved it into, in this case, a brewer's yeast like you would use to make beer. And then you brew it up except instead of beer coming out, heme comes out. And then you add that back into like a veggie burger and suddenly, surprise, surprise, because blood's an important part of meat, it smells right, it tastes right, and now it's the you know, impossible Whopper at Burger King. People don't realize it, but the magic of that product, a lot of that magic is actually due to synthetic biology, due to the ability to program cells. And then you look and there's companies doing this with egg proteins, milk proteins. We have a spin-out company called Motif here at Ginkgo that's working on this. Have you ever had a vegan cheese by any chance? Yeah. Okay. I can eat a veggie burger. Vegan cheese is like styrofoam that turns into sand when you touch it. You know, like it's a total disaster. Everyone admits it's a disaster. And the reason is you need casein, which is like a protein in milk. It's what makes cheese stretch. There's no replacement for it, right? There's nothing in plants that does it. It's just a reality. And so you have these companies now making casein, putting it, and suddenly you have this vegan ice cream and a vegan cheese 
that stretch and are creamy. You're like, what the heck is going on? And well, what's going on in synthetic biology? We're able to make these animal proteins without the animals. And that's huge, right? Both environmental, animal welfare, people, religious reasons don't want to eat this stuff. So it's like food and environment, global warming. That's awesome. What are other places where it shows up for a consumer outside of like food and... The other area you're seeing a lot is in materials. A number of companies working on leather bags without the cow, as another example, where you're seeing it replaced. You have people working on bioremediations, PFAS, and like these chemicals that are showing up in all over the place, basically baby food and stuff. They're very difficult to degrade. Well, the other thing that biology does, in addition to making all kinds of stuff, is it's the world's best recycling system. Leaves fall off the trees, they get chewed up by fungi. Half of biology is actually things to break things down. Suppose you're working on, you know, we have a company called Alonia that's been working on breaking down those types of difficult to degrade pollutants as another example. Think of it this way, Jesse. A computer is a programmable machine. You put different code in it and one day it's streaming a video and the next day it's doing electronic medical record. Like it's amazing because of its programmability. But it's very limited because at the end of the day, all it moves around is information. And the magic of cells and biology is it's programmable. I swear to God, it is, you put code in and it runs it, but it doesn't move bits around, it moves atoms. So if you think of what's going to get disrupted in the era of synthetic biology, it's all the physical goods industries. It's food, it's medicine, it's building materials, down the list. Electronics, those are all biotech industries, they just don't realize it. So in some ways, what you're saying is Moderna is super interesting, obviously, given the vaccine and it's the leader in the medical area. But gosh, there's going to be 10, 12, 15 other industries, anything that's physical goods, lumber, recycling, food, anything that touches a physical good that leverages any partly organic or maybe sometimes inorganic will end up being disrupted by this technology. Yeah, that is my aspiration is that the primary reason it hasn't yet so far is our limited capability at programming it. So the beauty of Moderna is as they are proving just how impactful it's going to be in the vertical of therapeutics, the underlying technology, right? Like the stuff we do here at Ginkgo that lets you program the cells, that gets better as a consequence of the progress in therapeutics, which means then suddenly you're getting a better vegan cheese in a year as a consequence of Moderna driving technical scale down at the bottom. They're like one of the great apps that's driving improvements in the OS. It's like Facebook built Cassandra database technology that now every company uses, same idea. That's exactly the same idea. Yeah, so these horizontal platform companies like Ginkgo are benefiting, and then we turn around and enable new app companies in other markets. That's the ecosystem that's really new. So let's talk about Moderna. Let's double click on it. So what's kind of the history of this business? When did it start and what kind of got it going? The way this industry works, usually, is you've got like the big pharma companies like an AstraZeneca. And then you have the, all these small, innovative companies, a lot of them in like the Cambridge area, Massachusetts, a popular startup hub. And you have, they are developing a drug and they'll have some idea that came from a lab and it'll get to a certain point and they'll put it into like a phase one clinical trial and get some results. That's like the very earliest one. They're making sure it's safe and they're getting some little idea, like maybe it works. And then if somebody at a drug company gets excited about it, they'll buy it up. Okay, and if not, maybe they'll spend a little more money and do a phase two trial where now you want to see how well does it work in this group of people. And then a phase three is like in a lot of people. Okay, and so those are sort of your stages. At any point in time, the pharma company might come and buy it. And what Moderna did very smartly was they said, look, we're not one drug. We're a platform. We are a platform to send RNA into your cells to program them in the therapeutics vertical to make drugs. We are a synthetic biology company that will make all kinds of drugs. and All kinds of drugs. If you were a venture, kind of the, using the problem solution framework from Moderna, how was it pitched? What's the problem and what's their solution to it? The problem would be drugs are pretty much all one-offs. Just because one startup company makes a drug, they won't have any better shot at making the next one. That's because they aren't leveraging the core code processing of cells in the form of something like RNA that would make it so that if one drug worked, the next one's actually a lot more likely to work, it was, the, I think, the theory. And maybe even more simple than that, there's lots of diseases that haven't been cured because this mechanism is a better way to cure disease. It's a new way to get at a whole bunch of diseases that haven't been cured. It's a fine, any drug company could probably say that, but I'd say the Moderna extra pitch was, we're going to be able to use the same technology lots of times in a row. So as a result, they did the deal with AstraZeneca. It was just in one area, but they reserved all the rest of their platform for themselves to do other things. And then they did another deal like right behind it with Alexion, which was similar. And those two deals together 
were like 300 million and upfront. So the way these pharma deals are often structured is there's some amount of money that the pharma company is paying to reserve some exclusive rights to that drug. And then there's milestone that's in the industry will be called biobucks. It basically means if this turns into a giant drug that makes AstraZeneca $4 billion, $10 billion a year or something, then you will get X percent royalty or you will get a big check the day it passes phase three trials. These deals notably had a lot of money just paid up front to access the technology and then had biobucks on the back. And that really kicked things off. Within a year, they had raised four or 500 million bucks and we're off to the races. But that partnership model was key to getting Moderna to scale. It sounds like that's common in the industry, almost like Hollywood or the venture capital ecosystem for technology where I give you some money up front and then they get through these milestones and they kind of get a rev share in the long run that continues to be revenue for their business. That's correct. And then if you're a company like Moderna, your real big value though, as you say, hey, remember, I'm Microsoft. I kept the rights. So I'm actually going to launch my own drugs in the future that I own 100% of. And that's like the COVID-19 vaccine. That's not partnered with anybody. That's just 100% Moderna revenue. So once they got to critical mass, they could then say, I don't need to partner with anyone. If I want to do my own drug, I'll just do it. And I'll fund the clinical trials myself. And I'll own 100% of the upside. And I'm a big enough company that I could be a drug company of my own. I don't need to partner. That's rarefied air. Lots of companies sell out before that point, And Moderna cleared that hurdle thanks to COVID-19. So now they'll be a fully integrated drug company at this point with their size. Are there any other cool or interesting deal components that you think are unique to this world? I mean, it sounds like you pay me up front. I use that money to develop it and I get revenue. Then I get some kind of back-end rev share economics. Are there other cool features of this stuff? Equity share? Yeah, the only other thing I think is cool is the role that the FDA plays as like an arbiter of like how good your movie is. Oh, cool. You got by phase one. All right. Well, if you want to sell that script now, that'll cost 50 million. Oh, you got by phase two. Well, that's now a $500 million script. Oh, phase three. Now we're talking. It's almost like the people sitting in the focus group and depending on what they say to the answer to the movie, the movie gets more valuable. Yeah. Except it really matters. <laughs> yeah. Because a lot of the risk, here's the magic of therapeutics. The demand is there. This isn't, hey, are, are grown adults going to ride scooters? We all have to question whether that's a business or not, just like if the demand is there. Will grown adults buy a cancer therapy? Yes, of course. So the demand is waiting. The question is, does it work? And the FDA decides if it works. The drug ultimately has to work, but the FDA is the arbiter of efficacy, right? And that's why those points are so value accretive at each phase. And that is kind of unique to pharma. Like other industries, even the ones that use bio, they don't have that third-party agency that's really just stamping value every time it approves something. It's really interesting. And you mentioned, so in the COVID case, they didn't have a partner. Maybe one thing that would be helpful is there is this BioNTech with Pfizer versus Moderna. Can you like walk through the economic differences of those, how they played out for the core companies and just help us better understand that? I mean, BioNTech was just too small to do it on their own. They had lightning in a bottle, obviously. And the reality was they were still a small startup. They didn't have the muscles to run their own big clinical trial and stuff. If you put your investment analyst hat on for a second, thinking about the future, if Moderna becomes the, the next Genentech in the next five to 10 years, like what created that for them? Why did that become the case? And how are they positioned to actually achieve that? So I would say you'll look back and say the COVID vaccine created it in the sense that it helped usher in this third era in the therapeutics industry from small molecules to cut and paste genetic engineering and the Genentechs and the Biogens in the 80s and on. And then to today with a DNA code or RNA code delivered as the drug. So it went from small molecules to proteins like insulin to now the actual code, DNA and RNA as drugs. I think COVID-19, the vaccine has established that that works. That opens the door and all they got to do is do one more drug. If they land another one, I think they become like the obvious bet to be the Genentech. But there'll be competition. Any good market in America, of course, has competition. So what makes them special? What differentiates them? Why did Genentech get so big? Why did Biogen get so big? Because they were like right there on the first day. There's certain low-hanging fruit. Once you know proteins work, you went from insulin to then human growth hormone. Da, 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 da. There was like a very obvious set of five or six diseases that were just people missing a protein. Diabetic, you're missing it. You're missing human growth hormone. You get you know, stunted growth. There's just these missing things. And if you gave them as a shot, you're better. There's like a compounding of the learning and of all the 
things that are just it's hard to catch up with effectively if you're one of their competitors they can get drugs out right now and they'll be you know if we believe that this they're called modality this modality this way of making a drug is going to actually work they're ahead of other people in pursuing all the other low-hanging fruit for that but you will of course see a ton of people follow it sounds like the modality thing is a big one even just stuff like company culture science like what are the other compounding things that give them an advantage over the next five or ten years I think culture is really important. Like we're really like careful about our culture at Ginkgo. I think it's like you want to have a place you want to work and you want a place that's like scientifically careful and all that stuff. The things that give you the compounding advantage over time are what that culture is producing. Technological heft that is just irreplaceable. And so at Ginkgo, we lean into that through physical infrastructure. Like I have a 200,000 square foot factory with lots of robots. If you wanted one, you got to spend 400 million like I did. And like data assets. And so Moderna would have this data asset too, where it's like, every time we do something, we learn how to do it better. So the data compounds or some capital intensity that they're ahead of competitively. You keep going. And if you keep going at that scale and other people are always playing catch up, it's like trying to catch up with Intel during the Moore's Law era, or it's like, why can't anyone make a search engine? Why can't you compete with Google? It's so easy to click on another website. Well, the answer is Google has 25 years of search data to train their algorithms and you don't. That's the other big compounding asset in this era of synthetic biology. It's once you think of DNA as code, whoever's got the most wins. That's a important competitive advantage that we have here and Moderna will have too. Last question for you, Jason. The listeners of this podcast, there's two groups generally. There's a kind of entrepreneur operators and there's investors. What do you think are the top lessons from Moderna and from this world for those two groups? For the entrepreneurs, I think you can start to think about using synthetic biology, even if you're not a biotech expert. I think building materials is a great example. Everybody wants to get to carbon neutral, you know, Starbucks, I'm gonna get to carbon neutral. They have these buildings, they got concrete. There's a big opportunity in using biotech to make carbon neutral building materials. You could be a building materials expert. You don't need to be a biotech expert. You can call a company like Ginkgo and get the biotech done. That's a new thing. It's kind of like Amazon Web Services meant you didn't have to be like a server expert or something to like launch a website or that's a sea change that just has happened in the last five years or so. You guys are like the AWS or the Shopify for anything, any place a person can apply. If you get enough sense that it could be disruptive in your area, you can start companies now on top of platforms. On the investor side, it's open season for nucleic acid drugs now. To me, it's like this is the third wave in the pharma industry, like pay attention to get smart on this stuff immediately. Yeah. Like start betting on those things. Like I think they're going to be the next insulins and everything else. You know, Moderna is like the big one now, but there's a bunch of other ones that'll just ride that wave too. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. All right. Jason Kelly. Thanks so much. Yeah, Jesse. It's fun. Thanks. I love Jason's overview of the Moderna science and his vision for markets beyond drugs. To dive deeper into Moderna and what differentiates them from other drug makers, I spoke with Matthew Harrison, a biotech analyst at Morgan Stanley. Matthew Harrison, welcome to Business Breakdowns. Thanks for having me. So let's jump right in. Tell us what is Moderna and how did it get started? Sure. So Moderna's a biotech company, but they focus on mRNA, which the company I think calls the software of life, but I think that's probably a pretty apt description, which is your body uses a lot of pieces of molecular structure to tell its cells what to do. And mRNA is one of those pieces of structure. So it tells your cells how to make things like proteins or other things that you need. And so they've tried to capture this technology and make a company around it. And so there are lots of things you could do. You could try and make drugs for proteins that your body is missing. You could try and teach cells to make antibodies in the example of vaccines to protect you against disease. You could try and, in the example of oncology, you could try and make drugs that help your cells identify those cancers so then your immune system goes and attacks them. So there's all kinds of ways that they're using this technology, but it's what I would label a platform technology company where they're using this underlying platform to then drive different kinds of drugs. In biotech years, right, it's not that old. I think Moderna is about 10 years old at this point. It was private for a long time. And what they did in the private years was actually very important is that they scaled that company effectively to a very sizable organization, which is unique versus a lot of other private companies when they come to market. They tend to come to market at a relatively small scale, but Moderna came to market at a very large scale. 
and had a pretty robust pipeline. And so it was funded the traditional route through venture capital, as well as partnerships with other pharmaceutical companies, and then came to market through an IPO process where they raised funding from public investors to drive the business. Got it. And can you talk a little bit about, you mentioned that it's larger and higher scale. So what's the typical route for a drug maker of which they are and how were they different and maybe why were they different? So I guess two things. So I think the venture capital funders, as well as the founders of Moderna had a vision that if this company was going to be successful, it was going to be not successful on one drug, but it was going to be successful on hundreds of drugs. And so they knew that from the beginning. And so they designed the company, I think, differently than a lot of other startups. Many startups in the biotech space have a specific unique asset as opposed to a platform technology, though others have platform technologies. And you want to drive that specific asset through the regulatory process or through the clinical trial process and try and get it approved. And that's how you create value. And so the view here was we knew to invest a lot of money in the platform first, build out a very broad and robust pipeline, because if this works in one area, it's going to work in a lot of areas. And so that was the different thought process in terms of how to build the company. As a result of that, I guess, what are the things that show up today in Moderna's business that are special or different to kind of stand out? There's a lot of things. I guess I'd pick maybe two or three. So the first one is an example. And I think if you talk to Stefan Bonsell, who's the CEO of Moderna, he'll probably give a similar example. But at the initial stage of the company, they invested a lot in what they call digital, but I'll just call it process. And so they gave a lot of their scientists and a lot of the people working in research there the ability to make drugs very quickly and test them against animals. And this is somewhat unique in terms of if you're a bench scientist at Moderna and you have an idea, you can get the sequence for the mRNA that you need and you type it into a program on your computer and you sort of get sent out to the manufacturing process. And one or two weeks later, you get a vial of drug back and then you can test it on mice and you can run serial experiments. Unlike a lot of drug development platforms, this was industrialized at scale from sort of a baseline perspective to be able to do research and development. So that's one thing I think which was invested heavily in. And then the second thing was to deliver mRNAs, you have to be able to do a couple things. So the first thing is you're making an mRNA, which is not known to your body. And so your body, traditionally, what will happen is if you inject that, it's going to reject that. So you have to figure out how to get it in. And then once you get it in, you got to figure out how to get it to the right spot. So there's some core technologies that after you have this idea, well, we've got a bunch of mRNA and we know mRNA can make all kinds of things which could be therapeutic and benefit. Now we've got to figure out how to at scale deliver that. And so they invested a significant amount of time and energy to figure out how to deliver it effectively and then how to silence it against your immune system. Because if your immune system recognizes the drug as foreign, it's going to chew it up and it's never going to have any therapeutic benefit. It sounds like technology, delivery, and infrastructure are these three things that really made them. Let's talk about the tech a little bit, because it sounds like that was really my conversation with Jason. It sounds like technology, the development of where our technology stands today, without it, we could not have mRNA. Can you talk a little bit about their tech stack and beyond what you just said, what unique things have they done with software and technology on their own that have led to breakthrough innovations or getting them to the place where they are? I would add a fourth thing to the three things that you said, which is there was a decision to fund this company at scale on an early stage, which isn't a traditional way that biotechs get funded. So a typical series A might be a couple million bucks. They've obviously grown over the past couple of years, but here there were many initial funding rounds and those funding rounds, I think were more substantial because the focus was on industrializing the platform from early on. So Funding was also a key differentiator. And then in terms of technology, I guess if I had to point to two moats or differentiating technology features, they would be on the same characteristics that I just outlined. So you have to invest in something called a lipid nanoparticle because the lipid nanoparticle, think of that as a fat, but that fat is what protects the mRNA to get it into your body, to get it to the site of action. Lipid nanoparticles were known and were developed prior to Moderna but they weren't scaled industrially necessarily and their performance characteristics 
led to side effects for a lot of people. So that needed to be fixed. And then the second thing was Moderna didn't discover this. They actually ended up licensing some IP for this, but they did do a lot of work to get this right, which was silencing the mRNA to your immune system. And so there's a substitution you do chemically to silence it to your immune system. And there were some scientists that figured this out, but Moderna also did a lot of work here. And by doing that, you create an mRNA, which can get in and then generate the therapeutic response you need. Because if it didn't, your body would reject it and you'd never have that drug getting in. So those two components are probably the biggest technology that they've developed. I mean, there's a lot of other small things which make it work, but if I were thinking about the core items, those would be what I would. Zooming out a little bit, I mean, we talked these innovations they've created. You mentioned they licensed one. How much of their success would you attribute to being the way it was capitalized and funded versus like the genuine science and the breakthrough scientific innovation or to what extent do those interact? I think for all successful biotech companies, science and innovation is the vast majority of what happens. But there was a choice to bet heavily on science and innovation here, which is different than some other companies. And so that just created a different kind of scale, which led to a company which has a lot more avenues to basically bore out that technology, as opposed to just sort of your initial example of I want to invest in a gal company with a small compound. Here they said, we know this is going to be widely applicable, so we're going to fund the company to be able to go after all of those different applications. Reminds me a little bit of like the internet. This thing is going to be so big that we should just give it a lot of money because there's going to be so many different ways it's going to come into the marketplace that let's just get behind it. I don't think we should overlook this is management is an important part of this because thinking about scale and thinking about how to push that business ahead, management is an important piece of that. And you've had a at the top, a management team, which has been very focused on that from the beginning. They knew what they wanted. Making this a little more basic for the listeners, how does Moderna generate revenue? So up until the pandemic, Moderna, they generated some revenue through partnerships with pharma companies. So they had partnered certain drugs with larger companies through their development process. Their P&L would get some revenue in from those, but that was really just a collaboration payment that said, you're going to spend X dollars on R&D and we're going to offset some of those for you. And it would show up as revenue, but it wasn't really revenue in the sense of sales. It was just a collaboration money. Since the pandemic, all of Moderna's revenue or sales dollars comes from its COVID vaccine and those agreements that they've made with global governments. For the first 10 years of the company's history, it sounds like they weren't selling anything. They would sometimes get payments to co- build something, to co-do research on something. Now they're selling a vaccine, obviously, or that started earlier this year. What does that look like from a PL perspective? What's the right way to think about it as an investor or a person trying to understand the business? They have advanced purchase agreements for more than 800 million doses of their vaccine uh, this year. The pricing is fixed by contracts with different governments. The only disclosed pricing level is in the U.S., where the first 100 million doses were sold at 1525 a dose and the additional doses that the US government has purchased up to 300 million doses are sold at 1650 a dose together but it's a little north of 18 billion dollars that they've announced in terms of advanced purchase agreements with global governments for the vaccine and the vast majority of that revenue will come in during 2021 and so covid's obviously a unique case but for any pharma business or for their future successful drugs, let's say there's some revenue amount just to walk us through the rest of the PL typically, like what's the cost of sales? What are the big buckets of expenses down to EBITDA? Different pharmaceutical drugs have different COGS components. So a vaccine like this at scale, Moderna has given guidance that cost of sales is about 20%. That's fairly typical with other vaccines. Different kinds of drugs also have different cost components. And just to give the listener some perspective, a chemical pill, so little tablet or something, they tend to have a cost of sales component between five and 10%. And then uh, biologics, so a drug that you may inject in you typically has somewhere in the high teens or low 20s, similar to this. So it's at the higher end of the range of drugs, but it's because of the manufacturing process. So that's the first thing. They've given some guidance on operating margin for the vaccine, which they've said is about 50%. 
they're spending on research dollars outside of just the vaccine. What's between gross margin and what's between the 80% and the 50%? Basically selling expenses and R&D dollars. That's it. Just to give, I guess, listeners some more perspective, traditional pharma companies have an operating margin in the mid to high 30% range. Most biotech companies, which sell specialty drugs, have higher operating margins of somewhere in the high 40s to low 50% range. And now outside of the vaccine, can you talk about how an investor might evaluate their business? I know the drug pipeline is important. What other things matter to looking at a business like this? For most biotech companies, what people look at is they look at the commercial opportunity for the drugs, and then they assign their view on what the probability of success of that drug is. And then they look at today's cash flows from that drug. And depending on different investors have a different view, but basically they then cut it by their probability of success. Generally, what defines different investors' views of different companies is they have a different view of the probability of success of that drug, which is informed by a variety of factors. But I think for most investors, it's the clinical data to the extent that exists or the preclinical data and management as well as how other drugs that may have similar mechanisms or different mechanisms have been able to you know, generate their clinical data. In Moderna's case, how many drugs are in their pipeline? How does that compare with a normal... I guess, at scale pharma player, the, the right comp to them? I believe it's around 15 different drugs in their pipeline, give or take a little bit, but it's in the teens. That's a high number. So compared to a biotech company that's maybe been in business for five or 10 years, a company of that size may have two or three clinical candidates. So it's a multiple of those companies. And what are two or three examples of drugs they're developing that are maybe not controversial? Just to give an example of how you, here's one, here's how I'd size it, here's a potential. And there are a handful of different modalities that they're looking at. So why don't we start with, with prophylactic vaccines, because that's a clear example that people are familiar with given COVID. They're developing other vaccines for other diseases. So one is cytomegalovirus, which is one of the leading causes of birth defects in the US. So that's the latest stage of clinical trial. We have phase one and phase two data from that drug already. And that's a market where there is no vaccine available. There are what are called seropositive, meaning people that have been infected with the virus. Good proportion of mothers have gotten it because their children get it, uh, tend to be at daycare and things like that. It's not necessarily particularly harmful to you, but if it's transferred to the fetus, it can lead to neurological defects. There's a good reason to, to vaccinate people against that. And so that market size can be billions of dollars. And it will just depend on what proportion of mothers end up getting that and whether or not the father would get it as well or not. And so there's a wide variety of things, but potential multi-billion dollar market with data in the next couple of years. That's one example of a drug. I think one of the other things, which may be a good counterbalance to some of the vaccine work that they're doing is there are a lot of diseases where people, they're missing a protein. So they have a disease where they're missing a specific protein, which causes their cells not to function normally. And these can have a wide variety of clinical manifestations. They tend to be rare disorders. So there's probably about 10,000 of these different disorders where people are missing proteins, but there may only be a patient population of thousands or tens of thousands of people with them. But because of mRNA, you just write a different sequence of mRNA for each of those different diseases. So the companies in the process of starting to dose some patients where they're looking at some of these disorders, if they can demonstrate proof of concept in one of them, I think then the market will look to that and say, look, wow, maybe they can iterate over a bunch of different ones. There are key things they need to overcome, which is they need to demonstrate that it's safe to give the drug multiple times to people because you're going to have to re-put that protein back in. And then they need to demonstrate that they can generate enough of that protein. So that's another example of something where a drug like that for a very small indication will sell for hundreds of thousands of dollars per patient, primarily because of the small patient size. And there are examples of other companies that do this. So the market size of those might only be hundreds of millions of dollars per drug, but because there's thousands of them the overall opportunity could be quite large. As someone looking at a business trying to understand Moderna, you'd say, just tell me if this is right, number of drugs in the pipeline, how big is the market for each of these drugs potentially? 
which stage does it sit in? And based on that stage, what probability do I think it'll be successful? And then kind of aggregate that up. And that's sort of how you think about evaluating a business like this. The other cut that investors typically make is they traditionally don't include all the programs. There may be a cut of certain investors may want to see, start to value them after they've generated some initial clinical data. Some investors may say, I'm only going to look at the most late stage programs because that's what's going to be a catalyst for the stock and that's what's going to drive the equity. So different people have a different perspective on what to include and what not to include in terms of how to value the company. If you double click on the way people look at the individual programs, are there other interesting, maybe things you wouldn't think of that people look at when they're trying to understand the potential for these drugs or for the business? Maybe let's just take a step back. When I think about drug development, there are different kinds of risks you probably consider. So the first one I'm going to call technical risk, meaning does the drug do what you think it's going to do? And so some of that is related to the platform of the company. Some of that is related to the chemical properties of the drug. Some of that's related to how you make the drug, but that's all things that maybe you generally speaking can control and have pretty good visibility into. So that's one bucket that can be informed by how many drugs the company has gotten approved, how new or old the platform is, how much data there is around that, how clear the manufacturing processes are or not. So that's one component. The second component I'm going to label is biological risk. So for certain diseases, we may know a ton about the biology of that disease. We may completely understand that if you add a certain protein or block a certain antigen or target a certain antigen, you're going to have significant impact on that disease. And there may be other diseases where we think we sort of understand what's going on and we've got a novel approach and an interesting idea about how to do that but we don't know specifically how that's going to work. So bottom line is the technical things are easier to diligence because you have a pretty good idea that some of the biological factors, we just may not understand them. And so people may have a strong view one way or the other based upon preclinical data generated from other companies, academic data from that biological process. But in the end, until you put the drug in the clinic and see if it does what you're hoping it to do, right, it may not. I guess the last piece that I would give as you're developing a drug along the way, we first may get some data on what are called biomarkers. And what that may tell us is, okay, you've given the person the drug and you thought the drug does something to X. And so then we get a piece of information that says, oh, look, you gave the person the drug and X is increased by twofold inside them. And so you say, great, the drug is doing what I thought it was going to do. Because sometimes drugs fail because they don't actually do what you thought they were going to do. But the problem is, if we still don't know X is the right way to impact the disease course, then just by increasing X by two times may not actually lead to a clinical effect. And so that's sort of that two-step process in terms of de-risking drugs. Yeah, that's super helpful to understand. And if you turn it around, can you help us understand what the company does from their vantage point around these things? And maybe it's almost like, what's the baseline? There's a bunch of researchers researching stuff, then they go through these clinical trials what typically happens in a drug company and then how is it different in Moderna given their different platform and their mRNA orientation? So a traditional drug development process ultimately tends to be very unique about the specific drug. So if you think about a chemical drug, a drug where you know it has a bunch of different structural elements that are from a chemical series, those drugs are developed uniquely for certain specific indications. And so you may have scientists that are very smart and very good at developing those chemical drugs, but just because you developed one successfully, it doesn't really tell you about your ability to develop others successfully. With mRNA, I think if we want to look at the bull case for what that could mean about the platform, the difference here is mainly the only thing you're changing between different drugs is the sequence of the mRNA inside. The way you deliver it, the way you get it in the body, the way it has drug-like properties is all the same, except for the sequence of the mRNA inside. So once we've proven the platform works, then you really only are undertaking that biology risk. So the technical risk should be very low. The biology risk could still be quite high for certain indications. You gave this example earlier of how now a scientist can write something in a software computer code, and a week later, they get the vial back with the thing they want to test, which sounds... I know nothing about any of this, but like, it sounds, whoa, that sounds insane. Like, that's not how it worked five or 10 years ago. The other thing you said was this unique nature of they can customize 
drugs for smaller use cases, what I heard almost, it reminded me of how the internet, now there can be a community group. You have any interest out there? Like you're a barbecue lover? Like, okay, we have a website for you out there because the internet is the internet. Am I thinking about it the right way of how different it is? And then that sounds, if so, then wow, what else can come from that to your point around how much easier it is? Yeah. So the customization, I think, is a key differentiator. Other drug platforms typically require a lot of work on the upfront side to get new drugs out the door. Here, because you're just changing that one component, you can speed up that process significantly. I sort of caution things a little bit in the sense that it's still drug development. The regulatory considerations are still substantial. The ethical considerations are still substantial. The testing that you need to do once you sort of flip that switch to be able to decide whether or not you have something you want to test in patients is still substantial. So it's not like, you know, they're going to turn out 10 different drugs and you're going to be able to just sort of inject them in people. But from a design perspective, COVID is a great example of this. From a design perspective, they got the sequence of the virus, were able to design the vaccine within days and had initial manufacturing quantities to give to animal models within weeks. That's a multi-year process normally. Yes. Tighten it a little bit. If you were to compare Moderna RNA versus traditional types, what are similar, what's different? I mean, I've heard you say similarities. They still have to go through regulatory approval, differences, maybe speed or number of tests. What are other things? And how does that show up in the PNL? Actually, if we put our investor hat back on, how do you expect it to show up in the PNL? A couple differences that I would highlight. One is your ability to iterate new products quickly and your ability to test many different constructs preclinically. So, preclinical experiments, as you get further down, when you do large animal toxicology studies, can be quite expensive. But when you do small animal proof of concept studies, they're relatively inexpensive. But you need a lot of different constructs if you want to test everything to make sure you've figured out which piece is better than another. With mRNA, you can do 100 different drugs for the same disease quite rapidly. In a traditional drug design approach, maybe in the same period of time it takes Moderna to do 100, you could do one or two. So your ability to iterate and try and figure out the construct that's the best is substantially different. The second thing is the translatability of technical success. And Moderna has different verticals, to be clear. So Prophylactic vaccines uses a similar manufacturing process across all of those. But if we switch to maybe rare diseases or these, the things that we were talking about, about producing the protein multiple times, that uses something slightly different. So those verticals, once you've de-risked one or two drugs in there, the rate of technical success could be quite high in those verticals compared to with a traditional drug manufacturing process or you know, drug development process you might run into a situation where every time you design a new drug, it has some unique property that's slightly different. And so you think it's very similar to what you had before, and so therefore should have a high rate of technical success. But every once in a while, you're really surprised and it just goes completely awry compared to what you thought before. So predictability in terms of technical success here is probably different compared to the normal process. And then I guess the last thing is sort of what we talked about at the beginning, which is scaling digitally. Drug companies, right, a lot of the processes, very bespoke work by individual scientists, that sort of technical process can't be industrialized. Here, you can industrialize that somewhat, which can then speed up development. Can you talk about, um, this is a little bit going, switching gears a little bit, R&D at Moderna and I guess in pharma in general, like when I hear R&D, it's a huge number for all these companies. My head is like, oh, a bunch of scientists doing stuff, but how much of it is scientists? How much of it is the testing expenses? Just give us a high level breakdown of the big buckets under R&D. Right. So typically the most expensive part is clinical testing. And that's because depending on the indication you're going after. So to give you some sort of benchmark, an oncology study may cost between, uh, let's say, a hundred and a couple hundred thousand dollars per patient. And depending on what phase of indication, right, phase three studies can be very expensive So you might have a couple hundred patients in a study, or if you're running a very large outcome study. So for example, some of the most expensive studies are cardiovascular studies where you need 20,000 patients at 
$150,000 a patient or whatever, and they could be hundreds of millions of dollars in, in cost to run those studies. So clinical studies tend to be the most expensive. Probably the next biggest component is people, which is probably not dissimilar from a lot of other businesses that sit in R&D. And then the other thing is inventory, I guess, is the easiest way to talk about it. But you got to make drug to run your clinical studies, to run your tests. You tend to produce drug prior to launch to make sure you have enough inventory to be able to launch and supply the market. And so that can be a very large component of R&D as well. It's interesting in your head, you hear R&D and you think of a lot of people doing a bunch of research, but the biggest expense is those, all the trials and tests and things that constantly have to go on. D is much more expensive than R. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Are there other things for biotech type business, RNA oriented businesses around, you mentioned they have higher margins, they have better cash conversion because they spend less on R&D because of the things we're talking about. Like, are there other PNLE type finance things that pop up because of the unique nature of the business? I think ultimately the profitability of the drug itself is fairly similar to the profitability of other biologic drugs in the industry. The difference is about their ability to potentially more quickly develop new drugs and have a higher rate of success with that. And that's what really would then drive the cash flow generation of that company. And do you expect the marketing and sales budgets, which are substantial, 30-ish percent, I understand normally to be similar for a business like Moderna? It depends who they're selling to. When you're making large, substantial contracts to government entities, you don't need a lot of people. When you're selling to thousands of different doctors, you need more people. But there's also something just changing broadly in, in the pharmaceutical landscape. The pandemic, because they couldn't go and see their customers directly, has changed not just Moderna, but a lot of the industry's reliance on digital marketing efforts, other ways to engage their customers. And that's led to cost savings that the companies haven't told you specifically what that is, but you're seeing those numbers come down. And so I think there is a view that over time that SGNA spend, that marketing spend against drugs will come down because people are going to employ different approaches. One contrast that I wanted to draw kind of going back to COVID is, can you just explain the difference for the first time that I can ever remember? People are like, I got the vaccine. Which one did you get? Which one did you get? And it's like a hilarious conversation because we've never, ever worried about who made our vaccines. From a business perspective, can you contrast the Pfizer vaccine versus the Moderna vaccine? Moderna owns 100% rights and therefore gets 100% of the profits related to their vaccine to their P&L. The Pfizer vaccine is split 50-50 with a collaboration partner from Germany, a company called BioNTech. So that's basically the difference. And why did BioNTech choose to go with Pfizer versus what Moderna? Or what's their understanding between the differences there? Going back to Moderna's unique founding and how they were funded for scale and as a platform, did that allow them to basically go all, all the way in this case versus needing a bigger partner Whereas someone who made a similar technology clearly needed it. It seemed like they needed a bigger partner to distribute it. Yeah. So I guess speaking specifically for Moderna, I know that that founding and the way the company was set up gave them substantial confidence that they could do it on their own. Let's look a little bit forward here, Matthew. When you think about Moderna becomes the next Pfizer, becomes the next massive drug company, what are the two or three things that they really have to get right for that to happen? Let's start with two that come to mind. So the first one is invest behind the platform that they've developed. And so what I mean by that is you've demonstrated COVID and the COVID vaccine allowed them to accelerate demonstration of their vaccine platform by about three years. The money that they're getting in from that has given them a substantial amount of capital now to go out and invest there. So now they need to look into vaccines and say, what are the opportunities in vaccines that we can use this proven platform to generate additional products? So that's one. And you're seeing that, right? They're talking about investing in flu. They're looking at other vaccines that they can invest in. So that's one. Two, I guess it's really about then, so you've got a successful vertical, but you have the opportunity for many of these other verticals. We touched on the rare diseases example, but it's about getting those across the goal line and then investing heavily beyond them once you establish proof of concept. So it's really about de-risking a vertical and then going all in on that vertical so you can invest heavily behind it. And if for some reason they didn't end up becoming that, 
and it goes in the other direction. What are the two or three kind of risks or areas that probably went wrong? The risks to Moderna are somewhat unique and not unique compared to a bunch of other biotech companies, which is you can just get things wrong. Drugs blow up for a lot of reasons that we don't fully understand. And so that risk remains because it's still a lot of these other projects they're working on are development stage. I think the second thing is they're a leader in mRNA technology now, but we've seen in many other industries that there are next generation companies who have different thoughts. Staying ahead and continuing to invest in that technology is going to be really important for them. On that one, just real quick, how similar, I'll give a couple of, there's like Blu-ray versus HD DVD. Like, you know, is that a risk in their business where there's some other form of the same tech? That's one type of tech risk. The other tech risk is I think there's constantly a new way to make a database. There's no SQL, there's cloud-based. Is there similarities in this world to those two examples? Both of those are risks. There are other technologies that maybe can't do everything that MRI can do, but in the area that I gave you the example of, we need to replace a missing protein in people. There are three or four or five other technologies that can potentially do that and potentially do it at scale. One could prove better than mRNA at doing that, even if mRNA was successful in terms of being able to do that. So that's sort of your Blu-ray versus DVD question. Obviously, there are other mRNA companies out there. There are three or four of them, and there could be more, and there could be other ways that people figure out how to use mRNA, which could leapfrog some of the current processes. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. You mentioned earlier management and the importance of management here. Can you talk about the, the CEO and the culture that's been built at Moderna that's enabled them to be successful? I think in my experience, it's about vision and knowing what you want to be. And so the CEO there has also kept that vision from the beginning of the founding through now and hasn't really lost sight of that. And and they haven't really differed from that mission, even in times when it took them a couple of years to solve some problems to get the technology to where it is now. So I think it was about maintaining the vision and really having a clear view on that and making sure everybody at the company knew that that's what they're striving towards. Well, last question for all our guests, Matthew, lessons for builders, entrepreneurs, executives out there, lessons for investors and then places for further study. So let's just take them one at a time. What are the lessons from this story, from your perspective, for people out there building businesses? I think the lesson that I would take from this is try and figure out what your platform or your technology is capable of. Not what you can do right now, but what it's ultimately capable of. And then design your business around that capability. So instead of saying, well, I know it's already de-risked. I've already made it work. I can make product X in six months from now. And I'm just going to focus all my energy on that. It's to say, I know this has the capacity to do X, Y, and Z. And let's design the business around making sure we get to X, Y, and Z. Yeah. And lessons for investors in the Moderna story? Probably the same lesson that I would say for most stocks, which is do your homework early. Look at the data. Because I guess a great example here is there was a lot of debate around whether Moderna could make a COVID vaccine or not. But the data was out there around, they had already made three or four early stage vaccines against certain flu subtypes. And we had that data, we knew they could produce an immune response, et cetera. Go back to the data and see what's available and focus on that, I guess would be. Well, Matthew Harrison, thank you so much for joining. This was a super fascinating story about Moderna. I appreciate you being on Business Breakdowns. Thanks very much. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jason Kelly and Matthew Harrison. The Moderna platform clearly showed its capabilities with the rapid development of a COVID vaccine. I am beyond excited to see what's next for the biotech world. To find more episodes of breakdowns ranging from Costco to Visa to Moderna, or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. <laughs>